Good morning, everyone. Good morning. My Bible's open up to the 119th Psalm. Psalm 119, longest chapter in the Bible. And if you would get your Bibles out and open up to Psalm 119, going to look down there at the very bottom of the chapter. If you just open up maybe to about the middle of your Bible, you'll probably fall somewhere close to Psalm 119. Going to read one verse there in just a moment. And I really need to encourage you to get your Bible out this morning and this evening as we talk about some subject matter that uh, is just not going to be real pleasant and real comfortable to talk about. And I don't want you to just take my word for anything. I want you to see that this is what God's Word says and that God's Word has some sobering thoughts in it, but things that we definitely need to be thinking about. That's going to begin today in Psalm 119. It is great to have the opportunity to stand before you on this first day of the week. It's been kind of an overcasty, dreary kind of weekend, but uh, it is the Lord's Day today. And that's what makes it a very special day because this is the day when we come together and blend our minds and our hearts and our uh, attitudes together in humble reverence before the Creator of the universe as we worship Him and as we spend these next few minutes together in the study of His Word. Let's read together in Psalm 119. This is verse 170. Psalm 119 verse 176. There the psalmist writes, I have wandered away like a lost sheep. Come and find me, for I have not forgotten your commands. In April of 2013, a retired nurse from Tennessee whose name was Jerry, she began her dream trip which was a 2,100-mile hike along the Appalachian Trail that stretches from northern Georgia all the way up to central Maine. She and a friend decided they would make that long trip together. And by the end of June, beginning in April and going all the way to the end of June, they made it all the way to New Hampshire. However, a family emergency forced her friend to have to return home, but Jerry decided that she was going to carry on with the rest of the hike alone. This again was her dream trip. So she was kind of slow, managing about a mile per hour. And her sense of direction wasn't great, but Jerry was well equipped and she was a meticulous planner. On July the 22nd, at about 6.30 in the morning, Jerry set out into a dense wooded area near Mount Reddington in western Maine. She texted her husband just before heading out on the trail to let her know, let him know where she was as he had been keeping track of her progress all along the way. A few hours into the hike, though, Jerry stopped to use the bathroom just a few paces off of the trail. But when she was finished, she got, well, she got a little disoriented by the tangle of brush and trees all around her. And as a result, she began to wander a little bit. She wasn't entirely sure of where she was. At 11.01, several hours later, she sent a text to her husband and she said, "...in some trouble." Got off to go to the bathroom. Now lost. Can you call AMC to see if a trail maintainer can help me? Unfortunately, Jerry was in an area of the woods where there was no cell coverage. So her text never got through. But Jerry kept walking. She was an avid trail hiker, and so she was certain that the trail eventually would reappear. However, she only got further and further and further away from where she needed to be. She tried texting again the next day to her husband. She said, lost since yesterday, off trail three or four miles. Call police for what to do, please. But again, there was no cell service. 
By this point, her husband had already contacted the authorities. He was concerned that he had not heard from her the day prior. He had already dispatched spotter planes and helicopters, but Jerry was nowhere to be found. She had continued to walk. She had continued to wander. Those days turned into weeks. Jerry wrote daily entries into her journal all the way up to August the 10th. And it was by that point that she knew she was really lost and she knew what was coming. And so she wrote a note that said, When you find my body, please call my husband George and my daughter Carrie. It will be the greatest kindness for them to know that you found me. It was not until more than two years later, October of 2015, that a forest surveyor came across a collapsed tent hidden in the undergrowth where there was a sleeping bag and a backpack and what was apparently the remains of Jerry's body. All told, Jerry had survived at least 19 days on her own in the wilderness before ultimately succumbing to the effects of exposure and starvation. What was probably most heartbreaking about that story was the fact that the site where Jerry had set up her tent and the site where her body was ultimately found, it was actually only a half a mile from the original trail. If she had just went a little more downhill, she would have ultimately came to an old railroad where if she had went in either direction, she would have been out of the woods entirely. Now, we hear stories like that every now and then, and they are gripping, they are stomach-churning, and they are sad. We hear about folks who get lost. Sometimes they get found, but sometimes they don't. The ones who do get found, though, they always tell the exact same story. At first, it didn't seem so bad. We just got... We just got kind of turned around a little bit. Yeah, we'll find our way out. I mean, the trail is, the trail is back that way. Or uh, just right over this hill here. Or the campsite, it's just over that ridge over there. We're not really lost. But gradually, as they wander further and further into unfamiliar territory, as they get hungrier and colder and more afraid, the bleak reality begins to settle in. That I'm not just turned around a little bit. I'm not just a little bit off course. I'm not temporarily misplaced. No, I'm lost. I'm lost. And not I'll be okay in a little while kind of lost. Or not even I'm going to be alright and someone's certainly going to find me kind of lost. No, I'm cut off from civilization entirely kind of lost. I'm worst case scenario kind of lost. I'm starving and scared kind of lost. I might die out here kind of lost. I'm really, really lost. Our opening text in Psalm 119 verse 167 speaks about someone who got lost. Although it was not a, a geographical lostness. No, the psalmist speaks here about being spiritually lost. And while I do not know all of the circumstances that led to the psalmist crying out to God for help and for rescue, what is evident is that he does not like being there. 
What he feels is he feels the awfulness of being lost. That feeling of helplessness and despair that comes whenever you are cut off from the Lord. That sense of dread and terror, it was overwhelming to him and so he cries out, he begs the Lord to deliver and save him. Now the psalm ends there in 176 and so I don't know whether the psalmist ever got found. But how many people today never come to the realization that he came to? How many people today never come to the reality that I am lost? That I am cut off from God? That I am in serious trouble here and I need help? How many people today fail to see just how awful their plight is until it is too late? That awareness of just how lost we are That's critically important. Because if a person does not recognize that they are lost spiritually, then what that means is is that means that they're never going to take the God-given steps to get found. Instead, they're just going to get further and further and further away from God. They're just going to get loster. And even more tragic is the fact that many people will actually die in that lost condition. This morning, I am here with really just one objective. And that is, if you are living outside of Christ, my primary objective is to get you to come to the recognition that I am lost. And I'm going to encourage you this morning to get found. And what that means is is that means that if you have never taken those first steps in order to become a Christian, then I'm talking to you. If maybe you have taken those initial steps, you have obeyed Jesus in baptism, but like sheep are sometimes prone to do, you've become lost, you've wandered from Him, I'm talking to you. And even if you would consider yourself just a top flight Christian, a grade A child of God, don't get too comfortable, brother or sister. I'm talking to you. I'm talking to me. And I should tell you up front that this sermon, it is not a fun sermon. The title is titled What It Is for a Reason. This is a dark and grim and extremely sobering sermon. But it's that way for a reason because I want all of us to be brought face to face with the seriousness of just how lost we are without Jesus. Somebody's maybe thinking to themselves right now, well, duh, Josh, we're all lost without Jesus. Everybody knows that. But I wonder sometimes just how keenly we have felt our lostness. Have any of us truly come to grips with what the psalmist came to grips with where we recognize how hopeless and miserable we are without the shepherd? Because the truth is, if we're ever going to be saved, if we're ever going to appreciate salvation, if we're going to really love the Lord who saved us and live for Him, then we're going to have to understand some things about how awful it is to be lost. And that all begins with this first fundamental understanding. And that is that sin, sin causes all of us to be lost. Now that may sound elementary to some of our ears, but that certainly is not the prevailing belief in our society today. Our society today absolutely wars against this fact. Our society likes to talk about things like like the basic goodness of humankind. We say things like, oh, he's basically a good person at heart. Or deep down, she's a really good person. 
And there are, of course, all kinds of utopian fantasies floated about, about how if humanity was just left alone, we could construct ourselves a paradise here on earth. But, but the Bible, the Bible says otherwise. Can we just run some passages together? Look with me, first of all, in Genesis, please. In Genesis chapter 6, here is the story of human beings being left to themselves. Let's take a look at the so-called goodness of man on display. In Genesis 6 and in verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. What about that? Let's add to that what's said in 1 Kings chapter 8. In 1 Kings, the 8th chapter, in this moving prayer that Solomon offers at the dedication of the temple, he says some things in this prayer about forgiveness and about sin. He says in 1 Kings 8 and in verse 46, he says to God, if they sin against you, notice this, for there is no one who does not sin. And then he goes on to say, Lord, please hear, hear our cries and as we come to you seeking your forgiveness... There is no one who does not sin, Solomon says. We'll see that again. Look with me in the Psalms. In the Psalms again in chapter 14. This psalm is credited as a psalm of David. And David, of course, on more than one occasion, painfully acknowledged his own sinfulness. But notice what David says here about the general state of mankind. In Psalm 14, he says in verse 2, he says the fool, excuse me, verse 2, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. Verse 3, They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. How about in Isaiah now? In Isaiah the 53rd chapter. In Isaiah 53, in this famous servant song, this wonderful messianic prophecy that discusses the greatness of the Savior but also the lostness of His creation. Isaiah 53 and in verse 6, there Isaiah says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way. How about in the New Testament now? In Romans, please. In Romans 3 and in verse 23, talk about the universal problem of sin. Here's a passage that I'm afraid that we've almost... We've almost become desensitized to. We've read it and we've quoted it so much. There Paul writes, Romans 3 verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That passage just tells us emphatically that sin causes all of us to fall short of God's ideal, God's standard. And you need to understand that this is not an inconsequential issue. Because Paul develops that idea further in chapter 5. In chapter 5 of Romans, he says in verse 12, he says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all have sinned. How about one more verse in this connection? In 1 John. In 1 John chapter 1, I'm quite fond of John's writing style, because John doesn't beat around the bush. John just says the kind of things in straightforward terms that we need to hear them sometimes. In 1 John chapter 1 and in verse 8, John says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. Now of course you realize that this is just the proverbial tip of the iceberg. 
These are just a few of so many passages that tell us the painful truth that we are lost because of sin. And I'll be honest with you, that's just not very fun reading, is it? That's not the kind of thing that folks want to hear. That's not the kind of thing that folks want to hear when they sit down to hear the Word of God being taught. What we'd rather hear is we'd rather hear sermons about heaven. We'd rather hear lessons about how to have a happy marriage. We'd rather hear something else that would bring joy and laughter and smiles to our faces. If you're like me, I'd rather just ignore what all those verses have to say. I'd rather just kind of pretend that I don't know about all that stuff or maybe I could just kind of fake it that sin, that's sin, that's just not something that really affects me. But we know better than that, don't we? I would imagine that on a Sunday morning, people who have made the time to come and to hear the Word of God, that we know full well how sin plagues each and every one of our lives. No one of us would say, Oh, I've, I've never sinned. Nope, not me. Never told a lie before. Never had a lustful thought. Never gossiped before. Never said a hateful word before. No, we would all freely acknowledge that we've done wrong. What's difficult for us though is acknowledging that we are sinners and that because of that we are lost. That's hard for us to accept. Me? A, a, a sinner? I go to church. Hey, come on, I, I'm an upstanding member of the community. I, 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 I'm a moral individual. I, I pray and read the Bible. I mean, come on, I can't be lost. I mean, you want to talk about lost? Well, we'll just look out there in the world. Yeah, I mean, look at what's going on in the news. Go down to the county jail. Yeah, those are lost people. Those are sinners in those places, but me... A sinner? No, that, that label doesn't apply to me. I, I've certainly made some mistakes. I've had some lapses in judgment, but I wouldn't say that I'm lost. Do you see what our problem is? Our problem is we're just in denial. And if we do not perceive how lost we really are, then we're not going to be very interested in Jesus' invitation to get found now, will we? You know, many times even within the church, we kind of just throw up our hands and we wonder, why aren't more people interested in the gospel? Why aren't we baptizing more people? Why aren't more folks interested in Jesus' invitation? Is it because in our preaching, but also even in our conversations with lost people, we're not saying enough about the bad news? We're not saying enough about the seriousness and the gravity of sin? And what sin does to us, that sin causes us to be lost. When the Bible says that sin causes all of us to be lost, that includes me and that includes you. That includes all of us. But you know what? As soon as I say that, somebody's probably thinking, well, that's, that's right. Everybody sins. Everybody's a sinner. So, so, so why is such a big deal about this? I mean, if everybody's involved in that, then, then how can it really be so bad? And what that shows us is that not only are we lost, but we're just plumb confused about being lost. You know, that's what happens to folks many times when they go into a forest or they go into a wooded area and they become lost. They say to themselves, oh, it's, it's not that big of a deal. You know, surely we're going to be able to find ourselves out of here because surely we're not the first people to ever get a little bit sidetracked out here. I mean, come on, everybody gets a little bit discombobulated with all these woods or with the snow or whatever it is that might cause us to get lost. And 
Of course, many times people say those kinds of things in the beginning. And then that turns from hours into days and then maybe even into weeks. And before you know it, they're completely lost. And I believe that well illustrates our central hang-up. And that is that we are lost. We are lost on the inside. That's our issue. Our lostness is inward. Can I explain what I mean by that from Jeremiah, please? In Jeremiah 17, we spent time in Jeremiah last Sunday night. I need to lean on Jeremiah again. Jeremiah, of course, spent the majority of his life preaching to a nation of people who were seriously lost, but who were absolutely resistant to that fact. In Jeremiah 17, Jeremiah tells us why it is that these people just didn't want to hear God's message. In Jeremiah 17, I'm reading here in verse 9, he says there, "...the heart is deceitful above all things. It is desperately sick. Who can understand it?" What a horrible, terrible verse that is. The heart is sick. That verse tells us that our internal compass is it's off. That it's fouled up. It's broken. That even if we try to do what we think is best, if we try to do what we think in our assessment, in our judgment, is the right thing to do, then more than likely we're just going to get more lost because our heart's messed up. In fact, it's Jeremiah who said back in chapter 10 and in verse 23, he said that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his steps. Why, Jeremiah? Because the heart is deceitful above all things. Solomon said in Proverbs 16 and in verse 25, there's a way that seems right to a man, but, but its end is the way of death. Why, Solomon? Because the heart is deceitful above all things. Our heart, our internal sense of direction, it is messed up because of sin. Our heart just serves to complicate the mess that we are already in because our heart comes up with all kinds of ridiculous ideas and explanations and excuses to try and convince us that, well, well we're really not in that bad a shape. I mean, come on, especially compared to, to those people out there. I mean, we're doing pretty good, aren't we? I mean, look at that guy over there. I mean, yeah, he's really messed up, but... I mean, look, you're doing better than that guy. Or look at those folks over there. You're way ahead of those individuals. That is a faulty compass talking to us. In fact, Jeremiah 17 verse 9 is really essential to understanding Hebrews chapter 4, which you find in the New Testament, Hebrews the fourth chapter. In Hebrews chapter 4, Jeremiah has already told us that the heart is deceitful. Now look at what the Hebrew writer says in Hebrews 4 and in verse 12. There the writer says, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and it discerns the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. The Word of God is very different and very special because it is external to you and I. It is not written by any man or group of men. It is outside of us. It is outside of lost human beings. It is not the latest self-help book written by some popular author. It is not some doctrine of man dreamed up by some pope or some priest. No, it is a word from heaven. It is God speaking through this book. That makes it the absolute 
perfect standard that makes this a true compass. Which means then when we look into the Word of God, then the horrible truth becomes apparent. When we read God's Word with an honest heart, we come to realize, I am a sinner. I am lost. The Word of God, just like a sword, it jabs us in our heart. It stabs us. It cuts us. It makes us realize, I've rebelled against God. And you know what? That's my own fault. I did that. In Genesis, the second chapter, would you go back to the very beginning? In Genesis chapter 2, in verses 15, 16, and 17, God tells Adam and Eve what it is that His expectations are of them. And that is, you're going to live in the Garden of Paradise... You're going to follow my instructions. You're going to work the ground. You're going to tend to the garden. And you're not going to eat of that tree over there. You can eat the fruit of any of these other trees, but that one over there is off limits. Can't have that. Pretty simple, straightforward stuff. Genesis chapter 3 now, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, Well, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither should you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, She took of its fruit and ate. And she gave also some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. I don't know about you, but it is stunning to see that Adam and Eve take these actions considering what God had just said in the previous chapter. It was so clear, it was so obvious what God had said. It wasn't complicated, it wasn't difficult. Adam and Eve did not say, well God, you know, we... We really need to sit down and study the Hebrew behind the words that you're telling us about about don't or that tree. We really need to sit down and think this through and we need to ask more questions so we know what... No! No, everybody understood what was going on here. In fact, even what Satan was offering wasn't that hard to figure out. It was nothing but a big, fat, bold-faced, straightforward lie. It was an outright contradiction to the word that God had said. And the very next thing that happens is instead of Adam and Eve looking and telling Satan, Satan, are you kidding me? Come on. We know what God said and we're not doing that. The next thing Adam and Eve is, is well, they're, they're doing it. They are. They're doing it. And the reason they're doing it is because they want to. There was desire. They wanted it. The serpent convinced them that that would be good. It would be great. It would be wonderful. God's holding out on you. If you really want to live a good life, you need to do this. And instead of doing what God told them to do, Adam and Eve said, Amen, serpent, and they got a hold of that fruit. Just like you and me. We have done what we wanted to do. We have done what we desired instead of what God desires. And the very best term for that kind of attitude is the word rebellion. Rebellion, the unhealthy desire to be the king of our own lives. We do what we want to do, when we want to do it, where we want to do it, how we want to do it, whenever we want to do it, I'm in charge. 
Instead of submitting to the God who created me, instead of listening to His Word, I will listen to nobody. I will submit to no one but me and my desires. God, I don't care that you made me. I don't care what your word says. I don't care about your commands. I'm in charge. I'm running the show. It's me first. That is rebellion through and through. Do you want to know how seriously God takes the sin of rebellion? Look in 1 Samuel with me, please. In 1 Samuel 15, because there we are introduced to a rebel. In 1 Samuel chapter 15... We read about Saul. Saul has failed to carry out the commands of God. And of course, just as the heart is wont to do, he has all kinds of clever explanations, all kinds of cute kinds of excuses for that, none of which actually hold up. And so in 1 Samuel 15, the prophet Samuel comes to him and he says, Hey Saul, i tell you what the problem is here, buddy. problem is you're a rebel. In 1 Samuel 15, I'm reading here in verse 23. In 1 Samuel 15 and in verse 23, Samuel says, For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Do you notice here that rebellion, it is talked about in the same breath as idolatry? Why is that? Why does God view rebellion in the same vein as idolatry? I'll tell you why. It's because rebellion is idolatry. But of course, the idol being worshipped is not made out of wood or stone or metal. It's not Baal. It's not Molech. It's not Zeus. It's not Diana. No, the idol being worshipped is the idol of self. Rebellion is the enthronement of me. I'm going to worship my desires. I'm going to serve myself instead of worshiping and serving my Creator. That, that is why rebellion is so heinous in the eyes of God. And so where are we now? Well, we're lost. And furthermore, we deceive ourselves about being lost because we rebel against God. And as a result, we get further and further and further away from the God who loves us so much. But at that point, many times, instead of us wising up, instead of turning to the Lord for direction and for guidance, instead of seeking God's merciful hand, again, the Bible, external to us, perfect, knows exactly what we need. Instead of us turning to that source, what happens many times is we turn turn to ourselves. We turn inwardly. We decide of ourselves that, you know what? I'll just fix this on my own. I'll just walk out under my own power. I'll fix this problem. I mean, I don't want to be lost. Being lost is terrible. That feels awful. It feels wretched. So what I'll do is I'll just save myself. And you know what? That is a very can-do attitude for people who live in a can-do society. You know, we are a kind of a do-it-yourself society. You just go down to Lowe's or go down to Home Depot and you can get yourself all the tools that you need to just do it yourself. Well, all right. Let's just go down to the Get Saved Depot and we'll pick up everything that we need so that I can get started on fixing my lost condition. And what does that mean practically? Well, that means practically that I'm going I'm to start doing a lot of good deeds. Yep. I'm going to start doing a lot of good deeds to make up for all those bad deeds that I've done. And that means I'm going to start going to church a lot. And I'm going to pray a lot. I'm going to give money to charity. I'm going to try to just be a very good person. I'm going to turn over this new leaf 
And I'm going to vow that I'll never do those bad things ever again. And of course, all of that's going to be really tough. It will. It won't be easy. But you know what? If you just believe in yourself, kind of have that positive mental attitude, the American way, just believe in yourself, you can do anything. No. No. None of that. Not a bit of that's going to work. We cannot do enough good stuff to somehow camouflage or cover up all of the bad things that we have done. Look with me, Paul says so in Galatians chapter 2. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul actually addresses some folks who are buying into this idea of self-made righteousness. And what Paul assures them is that nobody is going to stand before God and be justified and be saved because of all the great things that they've done. Hey, I figured this out. I'm going to save myself. No one's going to say that. In Galatians 2, Paul says in verse 16, he says there, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. You see, turning over a new leaf, doing a lot of good deeds and not doing a bunch of bad deeds, that doesn't ever even begin to address the sins that you have committed in the past. And furthermore, it doesn't even begin to reckon with the sins that you will, in all likelihood, commit in the future because despite your best intentions, you will sin again. The truth of the matter is, there's just not anything that we could ever do on our own from within us. There's nothing that we ourselves can do. Go to church forever? Perform a million good deeds? Come up with the cure for cancer and COVID-19 while we're at it? It's never going to be enough. It's never going to be enough to atone for our sins. It's never going to change the fact that we are sinners and that we are lost. In fact, this whole idea of thinking that I can do it myself and believe in myself, not only will that not help, it'll just make our situation even worse. Because believing in myself, that's what got me into trouble in the first place. Self! Doing what I thought was best. Do you see what the Bible's saying? The Bible's saying we are just lost. We are utterly and hopelessly lost in the wilderness of sin. Do you see why I told you that this was a grim and sobering sermon? This is a horrible sermon. I I, I hate this sermon. I hate this sermon because everything about it is true about me. I am a sinner. I am lost. I am rebellious to God. I am lost in my own sin. I'll never be able to save myself. There's nothing I can do to earn forgiveness. Without the Lord, I am lost. And if I continue without the Lord, I will remain lost. This is the dark and somber message that I present to you this morning. But maybe, maybe there's room for just one more point. Maybe one more point that could turn around this entire dark and wretched message and leave us today with some measure of hope and gladness. 
Underneath all of this despair and doom that is associated with being lost, could there possibly, maybe, be some good news? Indeed, there is. There is good news. And the good news is that you don't have to remain lost. No one has to remain lost. I'm looking in the Gospel of Luke. I want to stitch together three passages in Luke chapter 4, first of all. In Luke chapter 4, this one named Jesus, as He begins His earthly ministry, and as He is preaching from the book of Isaiah... He has these wonderful words to say in Luke the fourth chapter. I'm reading in verse 18. Jesus gets up and He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That is good news. That's filled with good news. The liberty to captives in sin. The recovery of sight to those who have been blinded by the devil. Freedom from the guilt and weight and oppression of sin. Jesus is the bearer. He is the bringer of good news. But even more than that, Jesus is the good news. He's the embodiment of good news. I'm looking for Luke 19 now. In Luke 19, Jesus encapsulates that good news... In one sentence. In Luke 19, as Jesus has spent the afternoon in the house of a sinner, He concludes that event by saying in Luke 19 verse 10, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. That not only is good news, that is great news. And you know what? I would apologize for just such a stark and somber sermon if it were not for the fact that Jesus came into this world to seek and to save the lost. You see, if we don't have an understanding of what it means to be lost, if we don't hear the bad news, then we'll never come to appreciate that Luke 19 verse 10, it's talking about us. Jesus came for us. There is no good news until you hear the bad news. But you know what? Once you do hear the bad news, and then once you hear the good news, that Jesus brings forgiveness, that Jesus provides direction, that He is indeed the Savior of the lost, then suddenly now you are running to Jesus. Suddenly now we know the way. Because when you're lost, you so desperately want to be found. You're looking for the way. You're looking for the light. And so we are eager to finally have that direction. We now have a compass that works. Suddenly we are rejoicing to see Jesus. You see, being a follower of Jesus, it's not drudgery and misery. No, it's life-giving. It is freedom. It is salvation because we have been found. In fact, that is the central message in those three parables that Jesus tells in Luke, the 15th chapter. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells these parables to help folks get a a grasp on the good news, what it really is. Notice just the first of those parables. In Luke 15 and in verse 3, Jesus says, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. 
Verse 6, And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, verse 7, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. The Josh McKibben South Central Kentucky translation of verse 7 says, I'll tell you this, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who gets how lost they are than over 99 churchgoers who don't realize that they are sinners too. Real appreciation for Christ. Real love for Him. Real desire to serve Jesus with every fiber of our being and devotion. All of that comes whenever we realize that without Him, I would be so lost. We sometimes sing in that great hymn, I was so lost, I should have died. But you have sent Him to this side to be led by His staff and His rod and to be called a Lamb of God. Praise God that we have the opportunity to go from being lost to found. Would you pray with me? Let's go to God in a word of prayer. Our dear gracious God and our Father in heaven, Father, we come before you this morning so thankful for the sobering message that your word contains for us. Father, while it is difficult for us to contemplate and to think about how awful it is to be lost, we appreciate the fact that you spoke with such clarity so that we might understand and grasp the good news that you have sent Jesus for us. Father, help us to have a greater humility and to recognize our own sin. Help us, Father, to not trust that internal compass to realize that it is off. Father, purify, cleanse our hearts. Help us that we might be able to be right with you. Father, help us to realize that we can never do it on our own, but it is by faith in your Son that we have the opportunity to be found eternally. And Father, help us to realize that we do not have to remain lost. Help us to realize that the people around us do not have to remain lost. Help us, Father, to have the courage and the desire to help rescue others from this pit of sin and the despair of being lost. Help us, Father, that all of us one day might be able to trade in that wretched title of lost so that we might be found. Father, we praise You, we praise Jesus, and we thank You for the great sacrifices that you have made that has made it possible for us to be joined with you in heaven for all of eternity. And it is through the name of your precious Son, Jesus, our shepherd, that we pray. And amen.